The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. All right, we'll be reading today out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. You can follow along in the Bibles uh, under your seats. It's on page 1014, or it'll be on the screen right behind me. And therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former, former ignorance, but as he called you, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is being re- this is being the ready of God's word. All right, so I picked a great Sunday to teach. This is really working out for me, by the way. I I will be quick this morning. That might be a lie, but I'll do my best. Let me open with prayer. Father, we uh, we thank you again for for the ability to open a book of your word and and to kind of march through it. And um, when we stumble across passages like this that aren't real easy or um, that, that typically wouldn't be um, the topics we would choose to hear about, I pray that you would just allow our hearts, our minds, our spirits to be receptive to, um, to receiving from your word the things that we are to do when we claim you as Lord and Savior. And um, we just thank you for um, just this body, uh, for the group that we're able to gather here together and uh, for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I've captioned this morning's teaching, uh, Set Apart, very simple, uh, and I think that'll become very evident quickly. Um, The breakdown, real simple, is uh, verse 14 would be confirming conduct, which is really just a call to say that um, it needs to be changed. And verses 15 and 16, which is our consecrated conduct, which is the be holy. And then verse 17 is the concerned conduct, acknowledging that we serve a holy God, that there is to be some sense of uh, reverence and awe in the God that we serve. So very simple, 14 is confirming conduct, 15, 16 is consecrated conduct, and then 17 is concerned conduct. Um, The summary, really, I like to do, I do a thing I used to teach years ago in another ministry, and we used to do this statement, to cause the audience to know. What is your goal? What what do I want you to know when you walk away? So I write the letters T-C-T-A-T-K, to cause the audience to know. Um, My hope is that you'd walk away this morning to know that our behavior to God matters. And that's real simple. A lot of times it's easy to say, well, I'm a fallen, I'm a broken, sinful person. You know, I dropped the ball and, well, I did the best I could. And at the end of the day, if I went to my boss at my work and, and had a project to do, and I said, well, I did the best I could, but I didn't bring it anywhere near the finish line, he might say, go find another job. Uh, if I said, well, you know, I tried to be loyal and faithful to my wife, but this girlfriend thing just kept getting in the way. You know, I'm not going to stay married. You know, if I told the IRS, well, you know, I, I, I figured the first offer, uh, the first submission to you was an offer. You know, when you, when you get an audit, they come back and say, no, no, we don't, we don't receive this as an offer. We receive this as a factual assessment of your earnings and an accounting for what you owe us. 
So just because we profess Christ doesn't mean we throw reason and logic with regard to our behavior over the side of the boat. And I don't want to say we do, but there's a tendency at times that we do. And again, just as much as you might do that in other areas of our lives, um, where we let up on those areas of vigilance that really matter. Um, so I, I don't know how else to say that. That doesn't mean that you're not saved if you drop the ball. It doesn't mean that God loves you less if you drop the ball. Um, we, we profess as Christians, uh, biblical Christianity is that I'm saved by grace, not works. So if I respond in my behavior um, to a higher standard, it's not so I can have this relationship with God. It's because I appreciate, I value, I acknowledge, I embrace this relationship with this God, this grace that I've received. Um, you know, I'm blessed to work with two people in my office, one of who's sitting up here. But what I find joyful, and, and this is both Miriam and Alice, the, the, the other uh, woman that works with me, um, we close the office at 2.30 standard on Friday. And there are days that I pull the bullwhip out and I'm just cracking the thing and I'm not worried about the clock, I'm worried about getting the job done. And I look over, it's 3.15 and they're both still here. That makes me value and appreciate to such a great extent their commitment. And they don't stay because they have to. They stay because hopefully, you know, they're valued, they're appreciated and they're paid um, as people that work in the circle with me. Um, and I see that. So when we talk about our behavior with Christ, I think there's a sense of being in that relationship with Christ where when we do catch a glimpse of that grace, boy, I don't want to let them down. I want to go the extra mile. of quitting times at 2.30 and it's 3.30 still. I don't care. I'm rejoicing that, that I have a role to play where I can serve within the body of Christ. So having said that, I want to open up with just a very simple question. What is the greatest celebration you've ever experienced? Greatest celebration. Maybe if you're young, you'll say, well, it's my 16th birthday. It was a great one last year. Uh, maybe it's your prom. Maybe you had a really great date, and um, you're still dating him, and you'll probably marry him or her. Um, maybe your 21st birthday. There's something about coming to age there. You made it. Uh, with all, I always used to say to my wife, we got them there with their limbs and fingers intact. We've done a good job. We're ahead of the pack here. Maybe it's... Um, celebrating a victory in your favorite sports team. And we got, we got a lot of reason to be happy here in South Carolina over the last couple of years between football, baseball, and women's basketball. We've, we've, got, we've had some celebrations. Maybe it's something along an educational uh, um, run where, where you're the first of, of, in your family to get a college degree. Or maybe you just had every obstacle stand against you in the pursuit of that degree and you've attained it anyway. Or maybe you're one of the first in your family to get a postgraduate degree. I've been to some great celebrations, and I was thinking about this. My grandparents were married 50 years. My, the best man at his uh, wedding showed up. We got everybody at the uh, anniversary celebration. And my grandfather stands up in front of a huge crowd, and he says this. A finished speaker, I love, yes, indeed I do. I don't mean one who's polished, I just mean one who's through, and he sits down. That was it. I'm like, what? What did he say? And, and you know, it's interesting that, that when I heard that, for some of you that are a little younger, a polished speaker used to be as somebody who's refined, chooses the right words. words. So when he said, a or excuse me, a finished speaker, when somebody's finished, they're just clean in the presentation of their words. 
And so the statement is, I love a finished speaker, that polished person. Yes, I do. I don't mean one who's polished. I mean one who's through. Get out of here. And he sat down. That was it. And I remember thinking, why? that was a lot to overlook for just, you know, what happened here. And you know what I realized? As he looked around that room and saw a lot of happy people and was joyful just to be a part of it and realized the favor that rested upon him, and he just wanted to keep the party going. It wasn't about him. And it was a great celebration. I emceed my mother's 80th birthday party, and one of the things we did in that was I told everyone, write on a piece of paper how you are associated with my mom, friend, family, um, church member, whatever, and then write what you like best about her, and then write the number of years that you've known her. And so we had really great friends. Her best friend, my mom was 80 at that point, her best friend, um, Freddie, was there, and she wrote something nice about my mom and wrote friend, and then wrote, for the duration, 75 years. You know, so you could pick out who was who with some of these people. Um, so let me ask you this question. You know what makes a celebration a great celebration? A real, lasting, valued, cherished celebration. I want you just to think about that in opening. Because it's, it's, it's relevant to where we are. This passage is not a celebration passage this morning. But it's a passage that's relevant to celebration. And hopefully by the, the close this morning, you'll see. So just quickly with, with opening up, where we've been studying in the book of Peter, First Peter, is that you've got these people referred to as exiles, scattered people. And Peter's seeking to encourage um, them in light of their trials and tribulations. He's pointed out that we live under this new hope, a hope that is grounded in the grace of God found in Christ, and that includes an eternal destination. Um, yet there are suffering people. Randy thought a couple weeks back about the reality of pain, the reason for pain, and the rewards of pain. And then Justin picked it up last week with saying that if we're in the midst of this pain and this suffering, that we fix our eyes to this future hope. That that is what carries us over the hump of, of some of these trials and difficulties. Um, so this morning we see how, not only how essential that hope is in living in this world, but how certain progressive changes in our behavior make a difference. Not only in the things to come, but in the things that are present here and now. So hope can take us a good ways, but hope can only take you so far when your world is sideways. And so hopefully we'll see some things that um, this, this morning can help us out a little bit. So we pick up verse 13 in 1 Peter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And the action is what we're talking about this morning. And be sober-minded. I read a commentary said there was almost an inference as be sober-minded is that you can't be drunk and pull this one off. It, you have to have all your faculties with you to pull this off. To be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. And then again, there's that pointing to the future. So we pick up in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your formal ignorance. Uh, the New American Standard uses some different language. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. There's an interesting between passions and lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. And so we open up that, that sentence with the word obedient. How many people like the word obedient? You know, I don't think we use the word obedient anymore except for training in children and dogs. Um, people don't like, are you obedient to your employer? Are you obedient to the federal laws of our country? You know, we don't like that word. It sounds like I have no choice or say in the matter. You know what the answer is? That's right. 
That's right. What do you do when the dog does something that you want them to do in the house? You whack them in the nose and say, no more. Stop it. And to some extent, without the newspaper, you do that with your kids, don't you? You know, you're saying there's not a negotiation here. We expect this of you. So he re references us as obedient children, and there's obviously the father relationship. Do not be conformed or molded or to fit into these former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. So this former lust is obviously a reference to the way we used to live. Um, the, this, this, and I'm going to break down how we used to live in a minute, so I'm just going to leave that there. So this, 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 these passions in our former ignorance, and that's really interesting saying you didn't know better. But now as Christians, what's happening is we're being taught to know better, and, and that obviously becomes relevant here. If you, if you are ignorant, it simply says you lack knowledge or information concerning a particular subject. Not that you're dumb, not that you're stupid, not that you're foolish. It's meaning you lack the information. So as you come to Christ, do I have all the information about what a Christian really is? Almost never. So with that, because we come based on faith, not on knowledge. And that faith flows from hearing the word, the spoken word of Christ. So it's not like I look up and say, oh, a Christian gets all these privileges and checks off everything throughout a biblical concordance and say, now I'll profess Jesus. We're ignorant to it. There's a, moment, there's a moment of grace, a moment of clarity, a sense of conviction, and I don't know the order in all this, but an awakening and a stirring of our life through the power of God, through the indwelling of his spirit. And you come up for air, and now the message is there's more. And that's the reference to where we lack stuff, being in our ignorance. So John, I want to talk about this obey thing just for a moment. John 14, 23 says this, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. But, but, but do we obey Christ to be his children or do we obey Christ in response to being his children? And again, I want to hammer that note because this, this church, Docs, is not a works. We don't profess a works-based theology. Works-based says in order to do certain things, it'll make you right with God. And that can't be done minus the work of Christ on a cross, dying a sacrificial death to pay the punishment for the penalty of my sin. So we rest on that work, but it's not my work. That is the exclusive work. If, if, if my eyes get taken off of that, this thing becomes a wash because I'm going to wind up on a spiritual tightrope that I can't walk. It can't be done. Yet, in the midst of this, there, there's a call to say that if, if Christ has given us his words, that obviously obeying those words is relevant. So our obedience is in response to the grace and favor, not to earn it, which could never be done. So now we look at this behavior change, and we, we talk about this. Um, they're, they're saying that you used to behave this way, and now we want you to behave this way. And so Randy's spoken of this, and many other people have spoken of this, but I love the illustration that when you got engaged to your wife, if you're married or your husband, when you said, I want to marry you, and you married them. You know what you you said yes to that spouse, but you know who you said no to at the same time? You said yes to your spouse, but no to every other woman for a man that would come along in the future. Period. So in that yes, you're saying no to all others. And very similar akin to our relationship with Christ, that when we say yes to him, we're, we're saying my love, my devotion, my loyalty is now being pledged to you. And when you pledge that love, that de devotion, loyalty, you're saying no to the world and the things of the world. 
It's interesting how this marriage thing plays with us as believers in Christ and in reality in this world. And, and, and there are multiple places throughout the New and Old Testament where it refers to the believing body as individuals and collectively as the bride of Christ. And I should say, you know, off the, the, the bride of Christ are those who love him. And he referred to us as his bride. And he refers to himself as the bridegroom. There's loads of scripture to support that. And I've, Randy stole my time this morning. I'm joking about that. So I'm not going into all this theological stuff. But in the Hebrew days, in ancient Hebrew days, you'd find a woman you want to marry. And here's the deal how this worked. You'd go to the father of the bride and say, hey, I want to marry her. And you'd enter into a contract or a covenant. Covenant's basically an unbreakable deal. Where you have certain terms and conditions and you say, I will do whatever I'm going to do in order to take this woman as my bride. And the father will consent. Now Christ being the bridegroom and the father, look at the parallels here. And the bride, us being the church. So you'd go to the, bride, bride, uh, the bride's father, enter into a covenant. And then at that point, there would not be a marriage. The bridegroom would leave and return to his father's house to build a bridal chamber, a place to consummate the marriage. But the moment you entered into the contract with the bride's father, she's put on 24-7 hold. Now here's the snapshot of us in the church. Christ, and that's a covenant. So the new covenant is when Christ went and died upon a cross, he made a deal with his father. I'm going to take these people who will profess me as my bride based upon the price I pay which is the covenant, the new covenant, the blood shed for the remission of sins. So at this point, we, the church, have been bought with a price to become the bride of Christ. We are as good as married. Now let me explain this. In, in Matthew 1.18, it said this. Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant. And he says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary's pledged to be married to Joseph. But, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, was a faithful to the law. Excuse me. Sure we got that. Yeah, okay. Her husband was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, why, for heaven's sake, would you divorce a woman you weren't married to? Because in Hebrew days, when you said, I'm engaged, you were as good as married. You were bought, and the price had been paid. That's us here and now. Now, what's really fascinating about this is in Acts chapter 1, um, uh, Christ uh, says, I'm, I'm going. And he said, where are you? Well, it's not Acts. I don't think Acts chapter 1. Maybe it is. I didn't reference it, but I know the scripture. As it references, this says basically this. Disciples come to Christ and say, um, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So when Christ died and went, where did he go? To prepare a place for us. Now, here's the kicker. In Hebrew tradition, you would say, I'm going to marry this woman. You went back to your house. You'd build on a bridal chamber. And at that point, you're building on the bridal chamber. The marriage date was unset. But you're on 24-7 hold. And with, how do you know what the date is? Well, the father would come to the son who was building on the bridal chamber. And as a romance, he'd say, I'm going to notify you when the bridal chamber is complete and it's fitting for you to bring back your bride and consummate the marriage. I'll give you a heads up to go get the girl. So now you're, you, even the bridegroom doesn't know the date of his return to the bride to receive her and bring her back to the father's house. It was subject to the father's approval of the chamber. And when Christ said, when the disciples said, well, when are you coming back? You know what Christ said? Only 
the Father knows. So knowing this marital setting on where we are, we profess Christ. And what is it? Our current standing is that we are betrothed to him. Now, if you said, I want to marry you as my bride, but you're still going to do the dating apps. There's all kinds. I'm going to get something wrong if I use the name. I know it'll probably be the wrong name, so I won't use dating apps. Um, But, you know, you turn off the dating app. You're not seen out having meals with, with other attractive single men. You're not flirting with your coworkers. You're taken. You don't, you don't behave that way if you are seriously committed and dedicated to the one who has pledged and committed to make you their bride. It just doesn't happen. And so the catch here in this passage where it's taking us is this, that when we became professor, pro, professing Christians in faith in Christ in Christ alone, we said no to the world. And so what does it look like to be one who professes his faith in Christ and Christ alone? It looks like one, a bride who has made a commitment to the bridegroom that she would preserve herself and set herself apart and aside for that man. So when the day he returns, she will be there ready, waiting, and presentable. And that's it. So how did we act in those pre-conversion days? I love this. The A, supremely selfish. All right, those are our pre-conversion days, supremely selfish. We live for personal gratification. We would give free indulgence to our appetites and passions, restrained only by respect for our own health, property, and reputation without regard for the will of God. And we would conform ourselves to the customs and opinions around us rather than the requirements of our maker. And we live for the object of wealth and fame. That's how we live, according to the former lust and ways. So, this change that we're called upon, I'm going to hit this point, and we're going to move quickly from here, because I'm not going to, I'm literally, I will finish on time, according to the constraints I was given. Why are we given these new conducts of behavior? Two reasons, and two very, very big reasons. These, these are humongous reasons. First, it will show to this world that we are set apart and to serve as a witness for Christ. See, Christ needs to showcase his people to say there's something different about them because of the love that, of, because my love and my spirit has come to indwell them. It will set us apart. And now I can be a saved person but say, no, I, I'm just going to continue living the old way. Now I think the Holy Spirit's going to have a fit with that. And I think you're going to be a very unhappy Christian at a minimum. But the goal is that when, a, when the world looks at us, they say, Who are, why would you do, behave this way? Why would you make these sacrifices? Why would you love these people? Why don't you get even? Why don't you retaliate? Why don't you gratify yourself? Why don't you place yourself above everybody else like we all do? See, the, the, the packaging that comes inside of the Christian transforms our priorities. And we have to manifest that transformation. And that does two things. It sells the world on the person of Christ. And the second thing it does is it glorifies the Father. The third thing it does is relevant to celebrations. And I'm not going to tell you because we'll get to that by the end. So with that, we're going to go to verse 2 quickly. The, the, the consecrated conduct. And let me read that. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, uh, you also be holy in all your conduct. Uh, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, that is not happy Sunday morning topics. Um, So be holy. Get your act together. Is that what it's saying? Don't drop the ball anymore. Change your behavior. Stop gratifying yourselves. Rearrange your priorities. Yeah, it's saying all of that. 
That's what it's actually saying. Now, let me break down a couple things here. The word holy can be looked at different ways, set apart for or by God, which means you are a distinct entity. The way that woman, when I say, would you marry me, is set aside and reserved for me and me alone. All right, set apart. The other definition of that is, is, is um, sacred or perfect. And so it's interesting in this passage because it says, but he who has called you is holy, present. You also be holy, present, in all your... In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy future. So you've got a present and a future holiness sense coming into play here. Now, I am holy at this moment that I stand before you, not because I brushed my teeth and took a shower this morning, not perfectly clean. I'm holy because of the atonement of Christ, that, that shedding of his blood. When Christ looks down and sees me, he sees a perfect human being. Because there's a covering over my imperfection. That's the result of the shedding of his blood. Likewise, in the future, that when I stand before a holy God, I will be in a purified, holy, perfect state. That I will be cleansed from all inequity. Now, there's also a process here, and I'm going to throw this out. This is kind of, I don't want to be distracting here. But I think of this. There are days, have you ever seen, have you ever talked to a professional athlete who winds up in the zone? Uh, I think it was Catfish Hunter pitched a no-hitter. And he said it was like, he felt like when he was throwing the ball that day, like the mitt was this big. Like the mitt you couldn't miss. It was like the broad side of a barn. He was just looking downfield, throwing the ball straight perfectly every time at this monstrous mitt. And the, it wasn't that the mitt was monstrous. It's that he had refined his capacity and his eyes and his skills that day to the extent that the mitt just looked humongous and his skill set was dead on. And when we live in a state of sanctification, where we are fully committed, I believe there are times that we reflect his holiness and we stand in a state of perfection before a holy God. Might be like skipping a stone across a dirty pond now, with the water being the sinful, depraved state of humanity. But I think there are times when God looks down and, and sees us in full yield mode to the Holy Spirit and grins ear to ear and says, this is the work of a holy God and I rejoice in my son bringing him to me. Now, I, I, and that's a great thing to strive for, but I believe there are times that we live in a state where sin is not present. Has it corrupted me? Absolutely. But I believe to say that this is not a plausible goal is a lie. And let me give you a scripture reference for that. Romans, you had to know it was coming from Romans, right? For death has died to sin since once and for all. For the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's a hard declaration. To make you obey its passage. And it's a statement. This is a choice option. You can let it or you cannot let it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been, who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin hath no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. For sin has no dominion over you. I believe that you can conquer sin and have victory and live in that victory over indefinite periods of time. And I say that here because I've experienced it here. There are areas of my life that I lived in defeat for decades, just decades. And that they have been followed by periods of absolute and unwavering and unequivocal victory in those particular areas of my life. Now, I still have what I call spiritual measles. I feel like God shows up in spots. There are other areas that I still feel like I'm flapping in the wind, and I'm just being honest. 
But can God give you that victory? Absolutely, when we bank on his word. So if you're here this morning struggling, saying this is a pipe dream, Jonathan, it's not. And I don't care if you struggle for the next five years, ten years, decade. I believe that grace will come to those who seek and beg for it. Not always in the time and in the manner which we like, but I believe that grace comes. And I, and I think that that's reality for us as believers. For sin will have no dominion over you. Huge, huge statement. You know, God has referenced throughout the Old and New Testament to us as being a holy people. Don't let that throw you, all there, throw, throw you off. So, so let me ask you this question. Here's the real practical application, the boots on the ground for us this morning. How do we really do that? I mean, it was, how do I do this? So let me start by saying that if you're not professing Christ as Lord and Savior, skip it. Stay home. You'll get hurt. It doesn't work. Um, it, it just doesn't work. Because here's the point. This is foundationally a spiritual transformation. And, and Ephesians 6.12 tells us this, for our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So we step back and yield to God's Spirit to say that, that you are going to indwell and take over this house. Once the Holy Spirit who empowers us, this Spirit will empower, convict, remind, teach, guide, enable, and allow us to follow through in obedience. So this spiritual backing is present in us as believers in Christ. So with that knowledge, where's the next big fight? The next big fight's in between the ears. It's of the mind. It's not in the actions. All, all actions born in thought, generally speaking. Unless a dog's chasing you, then you have fight or flight and you take off running. You don't have to think, run. So with this backing of the Holy Spirit, with this backing of the Holy Spirit, let me give you a couple things that, that I would suggest that we can do. Um, when we live as Christians, uh, there's, there, I love this. Grateful people are pleasing to God. Live in the midst of gratitude for all that God has done for you. Um, I get up in the morning and I thank God for hot water. Literally, I thank God for hot water every morning. I, I thank God for the state I am that I can roll out of bed and do the things that I can do. I thank him for these faculties. I used to thank him for coffee. I'm not happy about that. So it's just a side note there. So, so with that, we are grateful people. If you're having a really, really bad day, write a gratitude list. Start with your fingers, by the way. You know, we take so much for granted, and, and, and the catch is, if you really see the gift of life that we've been given to in Christ Jesus, and to understand from a spiritual standpoint the goodness of this creation, it will blow you out of the water. It's hard to grit your teeth. It's not, you'll have hard days, but your hard days, if you can have a hard day, a one out of a ten is a great day, one is a horrible day. And you're having a hard day, it can be a four, it can be a six, but with a gratitude list, when you appreciate all the other favor, it's going to be a six, not a four. That's your call. That is tangible, it is practical, it is reality. Pray. I love this. Um, pray without ceasing. You're, if you're not in a community group, you need to be in a community group. If you're married and you're not praying out loud with your spouse, start today. Dear God, thank you for my spouse. Amen. Good enough start. I'm, I'm serious about this. I, the one thing that leaves me in disbelief is the number of couples in churches, in our churches today, that do not pray together out loud daily. It shocks me you got a roommate who's a believer. Start the day in prayer with them. Build, build the prayer network. It's, it's a huge, huge game changer. Give thanks in all things when you're having a rough day. If you start thanking God for, again, his favor, um, things change. Things change. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16. Rejoice always. There's your gratitude. Pray continually. That, you know, that's essential. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will 
for you in Christ. Next thing, choose your thinking. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Choose your thinking. Oh, I can't tell. I'm not responsible for the first thought that enters my head. I hear that. That's a lie. That's a lie. Um, if you flood the house, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. These are choices. This is a choice. Choose or not to choose. And I think some days it's easy without these passages when we get stuck in them like this. That's why I love marching through the Bible. You wind up, you know, I got to teach this. This ain't happy. This ain't fun. This ain't about parties, is it? No. But it's the game changer. Because if I can't conform my behavior, if I can't live this thing out in this world, the whole thing's a wash. Take the thought captive. Now, you got to be, it's this, well, I'll take it a step further. Philippians 4, 8. Four, eight. Finally, brother, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Sink your mind into it. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But above all, huh, sounds like you got to push this, this one to the front of the line, right? Above all means everything else is left to the side. But above all, above all, we all, with, uh, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. So let me explain this passage. I looked at this passage and I said, does this really mean what it says? And here's what it's saying. If you spend time with angry people, you'll walk away ticked off. If you spend time around a cheerful group of positive, you know, hardworking people with integrity, do you know what happens to you when you hang out with them? You tend to be positive. You tend to adopt integrity. You accept and come to the standards under which the crowd you are hanging out in, you adopt their standards by simple default, by being in the midst of those people. And if you stand in the midst of Christ, primarily through soaking in prayer and his word and in fellowship of the body, do you know who you look like? Jesus. That's who you look like. The, the, we do a Bible app going through God's word, soaking in the word, memorizing God's word. It's invaluable. The only way to real, and I'm going to say this, I won't say the only way. It's incredibly hard to obey God when we don't listen to him. Let me say that again, just in case you missed it. It's incredibly hard to obey God when we don't listen to him. I love the Israelites said, no, 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 Moses, you stay up on the mountain with God. You come and tell us what, what you hear from him because we don't want to hear from him. Because if God forbid you hear from him, you can't thumb your nose at him. And you spend time alone, quiet with the Lord, he'll speak. The great old book from the 30s, when, when, when man listens, God speaks. But if we don't listen, he, we can't hear it. It becomes crowded out, falls to the wayside, and we go live about our life, gratifying ourselves according to the passions. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't say hopefully. It's factual. Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. You know, if you're a cold person, you step next to a heater, guess what happens? You draw near to the heater, you warm up. You want to reflect the image, the glory, the kindness, the passion, the love, the person of Christ? Draw near. Stand next to him in the midst of his body, in his word, in prayer, in quiet. And you can't not reflect the person of Christ. So what's this mean? It means we should spend our leisure time differently. 
means we should spend our money differently. It means we'll raise our children differently. It means we'll entertain our children differently. It means we'll entertain ourselves differently. It means who we associate with will be different. It means how we practice our professions will be different. It means how we drive will be different, maybe. It means how we speak to other people will be different, right? Come on, you guys, this is hard. I'm not happy about this one either. Is there a difference when you look in the mirror? And maybe that's just the question we ask this morning when we, when we soak in a passage like this. You know, I think sometimes the real change with me takes place when I grieve, when I grieve God's spirit, when I drop the ball and I just say, I'm not going to do it again. Where, the, where there's not just the word, rent, the word repentance in play, but godly repentance. Where I take a machete to the things that stand in between me and a holy God and I hack them away as the blood starts to splatter. And, and I think this passage brings us to that point to say, where are we individually, collectively? I look at this church and I think about the things going on with the building and the property, and I'll say this. I don't know whether we get the building or the property or one way or another, but I know when I come in here and I look around at the people that I love and that love me, I felt this. This is the most, this body, the presence of his spirit is here. And that's why it makes it a joy for me to sit here and read passages like this to know that it doesn't fall on deaf ears. And let me tell you why this is such a big deal. You know, you know what makes a celebration great? What makes a celebration spectacular is when you've killed yourself and you make it to the finish line and you stand up and everybody goes nuts. It wasn't crossing the finish line. It was that you poured out your heart, your mind, your soul, your passion. You took the machete to those other disciplines in life that were interfering with a goal that you had set. And then you rejoice. And we as the bride of Christ, I believe passages like this point us to the goal. Again, you hear. Fix your eyes. Because what we're doing is preparing ourselves as the bride of Christ to bring him honor and glory when he returns. And that if we've spent our lives living this life for him, when he shows up, there's not going to be a happier day on the face of the earth for you or me. And, and the byproduct of that is it will have displayed to a world who this God truly was and is and how much he loves us. And I see that love manifest here. That love does. Love has a price. Sacrifice has a cost. I'll be married 25 years this August. I get it. But there are days you've got to gut it out. But when you do stay true, when you are committed, when you are disciplined, when you do make those sacrifices, the joy, you know, to me today as a Christian, the joy that I have, I know the goal is coming and I rejoice for that day, but that joy is present with me here and now. You wake up one day and you realize that learning to train for the marathon of life is that where you're at the mile 24 and you look over and there's a guy at 25 and you grin and he grins and you know what has fueled that discipline to get you to that mile marker. You rejoice because there's no way you could have ever done it apart from a holy God. And that's what I hope this, this world, this community sees in Doxa. I hope it's what they see in your particular life and I hope it's what they see in my life. So with that, I'm done, 38 minutes. We're going to transition to communion, to communion at this moment, and I'm going to do the intro for that because I knew we'd run out of time. Um, so with this, think about this. Communion, we celebrate in communion two things. The price, the price that has been paid to redeem us, we rejoice. The price that not only gets us to the destination, but the price that puts us on the road and the price that keeps us on the road, that redeeming grace that flows from Calvary. But the second thing, 
The second thing is that he's going to return. He's going to return. For those of us who have been married, take a snapshot, and I'm going to say this for the man, that when I walked into the church and I saw my bride, there aren't many drop-dead moments in my life, but that's one. Maybe holding a child as well. But he's going to return. and He's going to catch your eye. And if we've obeyed, and it makes a difference, then I'm not saying there's struggles in it, but if we've obeyed, what a day of rejoicing. What an unbelievable celebration that will usher in into eternity. And that's what we do in communion. We celebrate the price, and we celebrate the hope. So as you feel led, we'll come up, set up two stations for communion. If you're new, we come around the sides and back through there. And uh, come as you feel led and called. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.